Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I thank you tonight that uh, we can come together like this. We can come together tonight, Lord, while the, while the young kids are learning their verses and going through the, the program in Awana so that they will be a workman and not ashamed, then, uh, Lord, let us do the same as the adults. Uh, let us uh, even try to lead them in, in terms of what we can get out of the Word of God tonight and how we can apply it in our lives. Uh, Lord, that every child would see every parent come out of this church every Sunday and be more like Christ, be more loving, be more faithful, be more compassionate, be, be more obedient, and just see the fruit of, of a life being lived for you that accrues over time. And so, Father, I pray you'd help us with that tonight. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd be here, that you'd speak to our hearts, that you would teach us out of the book of Psalms, and that you would help us walk with you as we go from here tonight. For we ask it in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen. Thank you. you. may be seated. And if you have your Bible, turn to the book of Psalms, um, chapter 2. And what, what, I, what I really hope to do is to actually get through the second psalm and get it finished tonight, uh, because I would like to move on from there. Now, next, next Sunday, we're going to have our wrapping party for the Thanksgiving baskets that we are distributing, and I'm hoping to get a lot a lot of the people from Sunday morning come back Sunday night and help us with that. Um, I think some of the Iwana kids also will come in and help with that. Uh, also in December when we do the uh, getting the toys together to give out to the resource officers for their kids, um, I think Iwana kids probably will be helping with that also. They, they have to do uh, certain um, um, community projects, I guess, in the course of a year. And so this, that, I think, gives them an opportunity. We used to do, years ago, we used to do um, Angel Child, if you're familiar with that. And you make these boxes um, through the Billy Graham organization. They're giving away to kids. And we did that for, you know, a few years. And, uh, you know, we've done other things. But uh, I thought it was a really good idea that uh, you know, somebody at the, you know, in our office had of why don't we take all the kids of all the resources, officers of all the schools uh, here in Blue Springs. And so uh, we're going to do that. So I'm looking forward to that. So next week, next Sunday night, we'll be doing the Thanksgiving thing. And I'm hoping then that the week after that. Uh, I'd like to jump us ahead and just kind of jump off into Psalm 119 and start looking at some things there in going through the book of Psalms. But... Tonight, if I could, we'll try and finish up Psalm 2 and some of the things that we've been saying and, and seeing about the Psalms. And we have spent, I guess this is maybe the fifth or sixth week, and it's been a mix of things we were teaching you about the Psalms as a book and then also looking at chapter 1 and chapter 2. And so we spent kind of an extended time with these first two psalms because Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 define humanity. They define humanity and they project human history, all from Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Because all of history is really just about God's works and Satan's counterworks. You could look at it like that. So, 
So humanity is about Christ and Antichrist. That's exactly what you've got. In, in Psalm 1, you've got you know, Christ in the first three verses and kind of the ungodly man, Antichrist, in the last three. And, and then here in Psalm 2, we're looking at a more extended way, kind of at that rebellious man, the, um, the Antichrist. So you've got Christ-likeness, and, and the only alternative is ungodliness. So this is another aspect of comparative religions that really proves to you that Christianity is the only valid valid way. It's the only valid path. Because we can talk about Christianity and we can see what it produces with Christ-likeness. Nobody in Buddhism talks about Buddha-likeness. Because you're not aiming for that. That's not the goal. I mean, Buddha-likeness is what? What is Buddha-likeness? What was Buddha's end? He levitated, and then lightning struck, and he was gone, and he was absorbed into the universe. And that, <laughs> that's the best a lost man can do on a good day, is to say, okay, well, I just hope that I'm out of here, and I'm not real anyway, and personality is not real anyway. And, and, I, and, and, and you know, my best hope is that I will not be held accountable for my sins, and I'll just, you know, I'll just, it'll just be gone, I'll be absorbed, it'll be nothing. Nobody talks about Muhammad-likeness. No, no Muslims talk about, well, they're, gonna, they're following Muhammad. Now, they're following Islam, which means... I mean, the name Islam means submitted to God. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm Muslim then, uh, because I'm submitted to God. But they don't talk about godliness. They don't even talk about Muhammadness or Muhammad-likeness, um, because there were some really seedy aspects of him. So, I, you know, I'm just saying, that you compare all religions all you want, uh, the only alternative to ungodliness is Christ-likeness. The only alternative to Christ-likeness is ungodliness. And everyone on the planet is going to be one of those two things, one or, or the other. So these two psalms are the key. And after, after this, I want us to you know, head for the good parts and uh, focus our minds at the end of this year and the start of next year. Uh, in Psalm 119. But we started here in Psalm 2. If you look with me at verse 1, so it starts off talking about God's guilty subjects. So that if you have a handout, if you didn't get a handout, there's some over by the door. Probably should have pointed that out by now. But there are some over by the door. Uh, Tom's going to get in some. If you need one, just raise your hand. He'll bring it to you. But, uh, so, okay, God's guilty subjects. Verse 1 asks the question. We saw, I think we got through verse 1 last time, but we saw it, it say, Why do the heathen rage? And they rage, and first off, letter A, their rebellion is formal. Because it says, And the people imagine a vain thing. And we pointed out last, last time, last Sunday night, that if you have a King James Bible that is a center column reference Bible, uh, you can see in the margin by that, by that f- phrase, imagine, that, it, that the James gang tells you that to imagine something 
means to dream something. It means they are actually plotting something specific because the word also means meditate. Imagine, or as it says in King James Margin, or meditate. So they're plotting something. They're going after something specific. It is a formal rebellion that they are after. They formally plot in their paranoia to perform a premeditated crime against God. And that's what they do. And I'm just, you know, I'm amazed. I'm amazed at how true this is and how much this is true in various aspects of our world. I mean, it, it used to be, particularly we as Americans thought, that is, it was the Russians who are plotting against God. And maybe it's the Chinese who are plotting against God. You know, it is all the, uh, it's all the Marxists and the communists, they are plotting against God. And, uh, well, you know, how much now do we seem to see, I think, we seem to see in European countries plot against God. And, you know, lest you think that somehow we are exempt, well, here in America, we have people plotting against God. And it's not necessarily the, I mean, you know, I don't want to, I want I don't want to get off track by talking, you know, getting into any areas of politics or anything like that, because I know in your mind you can think, oh, I know who he's talking, he's talking about that group, he's talking about those people, he's talking about those. But, you know, we did have one of the, kind of, kind of the major leaders of a certain movement get, get up just recently and said, you know, we, we kind of need a one world religion. I mean, we're one country under God. So we need that country to be one religion. And I know what religion he was talking about because he's, he's that religion. He, he's Roman Catholic. I mean, and he is like Roman Roman Catholic. He is like angel-worshipping Roman Catholic. And, and he's getting up saying, okay, you know, we need a, you know America needs one religion. We're, we're one people under God. We need one religion. Well, I... Okay, oh, but all you're doing is plotting against God if you're saying that, it's, that your religion is the one that it needs to be. So we've got, you know, we've got this sweeping the planet, it seems, plotting in their paranoia. What do these conspirators do? Well, they imagine, they meditate and plan how they are going to get the world to work without God. And yes, that is the whole basis of Marxism. I mentioned this morning that entire world history is is really marked by six Jews, three theists and three atheists. And uh, so you've got, you know, you've got you got Moses, you got Jesus, you've got Paul, but then after that, you've got Marx. Okay, and so what he is laying out, and I'm not advocating anybody needs to study Marxism because it is such a failed system. It's like, who goes along with that anymore? I know we throw the word around a lot. We throw the word around all the time. But nobody's a Marxist because it's failed so miserably. But all that he was about is, was constructing a world, how to get the world to work 
without God. Marx, Freud, all that Sigmund Freud was about was trying to tell you how you can make your life work without God. How you can make your life, how you make yourself happy without God. How you can get over your psychosis, which is caused by your guilt, by getting rid of your guilt, because we're going to get rid of God. And then Einstein obviously, you know, uh, you know makes a, a turning point in world history uh, for more benign means, I guess I would say, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the discoveries and things he came up with. So, okay. So we see, we see Psalm 2 is defining the very day that we're living in. So not only is their rebellion formal, but letter B, their rebellion is forceful. So first, they plot, because that's what that term, imagination, means. Even though it's a vain imagination, as vain as Marxism, it won't work. It never works. It is such a miserable failure. And it has been in every country that's ever been applied to. And so, okay, it's, it's a vain imagination, but it's a formal rebellion. Now there's a forceful rebellion. That's the second thing they do. Look at verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, which literally means they take a stand. They're not going to change their position. They decide they've had enough of trusting God. Now we saw the detailed doctrinal aspects of this when we went through the book of Revelation together. So we took 12 messages to go through 22 chapters because nobody ever does that and I didn't want to get bogged down. I really wanted us to to see what the truth was for our end times. And in Revelation 17, Revelation 18, you see the kings of the earth set themselves against God and even against the woman who was riding the beast, who I think is a great picture of the imperial church. And they've had, aside, they've had enough of trust in God, they're going to put their trust in this one man, the Antichrist. So the kings here set themselves, and then the third thing they do, and the rulers take counsel together. They, uh, I mean, even now, they, they set up conferences, they gather by appointment, they meet at appointed times, they put out press releases before they leave from, you know, doing their, um, the uh, summit that they have together. And the force of their rebellion, these three things, is against this one thing right here, verse 2, against the Lord and against his anointed. Now keep your finger here, but go to the book of Jude. Hey, Jude. That's like, if you can find the book of Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible, I mean next to last, right next to the book of Concordance, and you back up a book, you know, Jude is going to be right in there, and it, uh, you know, may be the sticky, sticky pages of your Bible, because you haven't even got the gold broke off the edge of it yet, uh, if you haven't been there to read it. But turn to the, to the book of Jude. I think we mentioned even last, you know, last Sunday, 
Um, at the bottom line, everyone except the Bible believer is part of the conspiracy. And if you remember back to what we talked about today and what we saw in 2 Thessalonians, that's, that is especially going to be true in the tribulation, after the church is raptured. Because everyone left who heard the gospel and rejected it right now is going to absolutely be deceived by the lies of the Antichrist. So it's kind of like everybody except a Bible believer is part of the conspiracy. And that's why in the tribulation, while Gentiles can still be saved, that's not mainly what's going to be happening. Most, a lot of them, most, most of them will have heard the gospel in some form, some format, some fashion, and rejected it. And, and it's going to be the Jews that are going to be saying, huh, I wonder if I should take this mark. I wonder what God has to say about this. You know, this, you know, in the New Testament, there's actually a book written to me. It's called Hebrews. And, uh, and so maybe I ought to read that and figure out what's going on. And some of those other, that we, what we call general epistles, I, I, would, I would say they are Hebrew Christian epistles, um, starting with Hebrews and running through the book of Revelation. So they're going to, they're going to look at that, but man, a lot of the Gentiles, they're, as we saw this morning, it's just, it, they're all condemned. So our job right now is to recognize that and to know that so that we can do what? Well, so that we can do this. Somebody who is at the book of Jude that, that can do this in your outside playground voice Stand up and read verse 23. Jude verse 23. Ah, that's what we do. We need to know this. I mean, I know this is not, this is not the devotional part of the book of Psalms. Exactly. You know, it's not exactly that. I mean, we'll have more fun in Psalm 119. But I needed both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 to kind of give us the definition of the type of thing that the book of Psalms is, is able to give us overall in defining humanity and human history because it is showing us what's happening. It is telling us what we have to do. I mean, now that we know this, we know what we've got to do. And do it before it's too late. Save others with fear. Nobody wants to do anything by fear today. Have you noticed that? I mean, the great, great you know, a lot of the, uh, within evangelicaldom, a lot of the megachurch pastors, I mean, some of their most popular series that they make the most money off of, that they sell the most CDs of, that they, that they sell the most books off of, are going to be about how you can eliminate your fear. So you never have to fear. And yet so many times in the Bible, you know, we read things like, well, you know, fear of the Lord, that's kind of the beginning of wisdom. I mean, there's some things we need to fear. We need to have so much fear, not only about what is happening and what is happening to people who are on the outside of Christ. We ought to have so much fear 
that we save them, pulling them out of the fire, even if we got to hate the garment spotted by the flesh. So the rebellion is formal. The rebellion is forceful. And then third, third, letter C, their rebellion is focused. And the focus of this rebellion is twofold. First, number one, against the hated person of God. We see that right at the end of verse 2, where it says, against the Lord and against his anointed. And then secondly, number two, against the hated precepts of God. Look at verse 3, Psalm 2, verse 3. Let us break their bands asunder. Let us cast away their cords from us. Whose cords? Well, the cords of the God that they want to get rid of. Because they think freedom is only in casting God off. And if I can find out how to make life work without God, oh, then I'll be free. You know, really Judeo-Christian ethics and morality are the only thing that bring freedom. They think, well, that's too intolerant for my immorality. I can't, go, I can't walk with you there because you are too intolerant for my immorality. Um, let's, uh, let's get rid of the Jews because they're holding us back. I mean, the Jews own this and that and the other thing, and they own the banks, and they're running the money. And, you know, Let's get rid of them because they're holding us back. And, you know, Let's get rid of Bible-believing Christianity. Now, if we decide we want one religion because we are one people under God, well, let it be the imperial church. Let it be Roman Catholic religion. We'll go with that. But, you know, really, these Bible-believing Christians, no, we, we kind of need to get rid of those. And so what we observe today is, is a rebellion that is getting more and more focused because it is getting the world ready for this final rebellion against God. So having defined God's guilty human subjects, he now talks about, and this is Roman numeral two, his own great scorn. God talks about his own great scorn. Now, I don't know if you study history. History is uh, interesting to you at all. I have to admit that, you know, when I was in school, uh, both high school and college, and, you know, I took history classes there, but I didn't learn anything from history. I don't know why. I just didn't pay attention. I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't, I, it's like I didn't learn anything. And it was decades later that I thought, you know, maybe I had to study the Civil War. It might be interesting. Maybe I had to study World War II. I mean, what, what really happened in all that? Maybe I had to look at World War I. How do we get to that place? You know, obviously church history, that was, you know, once I got saved and got into a church that was teaching church history, then, then that was interesting to me. But if you are a student of history or find it interesting, you know that the French Revolution was quite different from the American Revolution. The American Revolution was a good Roman Revolution in that it was predominantly deist-led. 
And so it affirmed its faith in the great architect of the universe. So maybe, a, maybe 20% of the founding fathers were evangelical, but 80% or more were at least Anglican. Uh, you know, they were at least Church of England, which it's kind of difficult to be part of a church whose head is the king you're rebelling against. Well, that's how the Episcopal Church started. Uh, so, okay, they, at least they were, you know, at least they were that. And, and Colin Powell, who had just passed, and they had his funeral at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., because he was an Episcopalian, as uh, many members of Congress uh, are, are Episcopalian. And so that was kind of the American Revolution, but the French Revolution was atheistic. One of the revolutionaries who helped storm the Bastille. The Bastille was like the prison there in Paris. And the, and the crowds got, got together and they just stormed the place and they let people out of prison and they killed the guards and they did all of that. And they, he stormed the Bastille. Then he scaled the cathedral of Notre Dame and tore the cross off of the spire at the top of the cathedral, dashed it into fragments on, down on the pavement. And then he looked at one of the peasants, and he said, we're going to pull down everything that reminds mankind of God. The peasant just looked up at him and cupped his hands, and he yelled, citizen, then you must pull down the stars also. So, God speaks to them in derision, verse 4. He speaks, he derides what they are doing and what they are saying. Verse 4, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Now, we successfully have hardware in the heavens, that's, that's an amazing thing. Helps us all out with our cell phones and, you know, stuff like that. Uh, we have even walked on the moon, and unless you believe that we didn't walk on the moon. But I think we walked on the moon because, because I remember what CGI, computer-generated graphics, were like in 1969, and I don't think it was CGI. I'm just saying so I, I think we've even walked on the moon. All right, we did all that, but you know what? We still only did it with material that was supplied by God. So if, this, if you'll turn to Proverbs chapter 1, Proverbs chapter 1, let me tell you the vain imagination of men and women today, the vain imagination today, and this particularly helped those of you who have young kids or kids who are going through school, uh, you know, especially if they're in the public school, uh, you, you know, you need to be thinking right now because the evolutionists just recently, I'm talking about, I'm talking about recent stuff. I'm not talking about, you know, stuff that I learned back in the ice age. I'm, t I'm talking about recent scientific stuff that's going on in their journals. They have recently imagined a four-legged whale as supposed to be a transitional form. You know, that's one of the major 
things that prove evolution is not true is that there are no, really there are no transitional forms in the fossil record. Cambrian explosion, boom. Okay, we got all these trilobites. Where'd they come from? There's no, evo there's no evidence of them evolving. They're just here. And that same thing is true with every single species. Uh, but they, they have imagined a four-legged whale, uh, an extinct transitional form, to show how fish became mammals and how those mammals grew legs and started walking on land. Because that is their preferred scenario. The problem is this. They found a fossil, but they did not find any of the fossil's legs. They did not find even the pelvis. It is missing most of its ribs and its backbone and the front portion of its snout. And yet out of that, they creatively imagine a whale with legs. And this happens so often on, on the other end of the hominids. Uh, you know, they discover something someplace in Africa or someplace else. You know, um, it used to be Lucy the Ape Man. I don't know what they're up to now. But they discover these bones. And, oh, that, you know, that is, that's the transitional human between apes and, apes and human, actual human beings. And, and they say that when all they've got is like one tooth. So they're building the rest of this picture. All, I mean, that is the vain imaginations. God laughs at that. God mocks that. Did any of you take eighth grade earth science or biology or whatever they were doing back then? Maybe you were taught, just like your children are taught, that scientific experiments have simulated the production of the building blocks of life under the same conditions as the early earth. But you know what? They cheat. When they say that, they cheat. And they cheat first because they did not create the chemicals that they start out with. Okay, so they're cheating. They didn't. They didn't, you didn't, the scientists didn't create those chemicals. God already made those chemicals and now you're using them. So they don't, he started off with nothing. They don't start out of nothing. And second, they use purified chemicals which do not exist under natural conditions to produce these amino acids which could be, could maybe someday somehow converge into proteins, and we know proteins are the building blocks of life. So God laughs, God mocks. So someone who is at Proverbs chapter 1, stand up and read verses 26 and 27. Okay, now you all knew I was going to tell you to do this tonight. Kim. So God is going to laugh at your calamity. God is going to mock when your fear comes. Now, God, that's not what God starts off with. That's what God is forced to by the, by the fact of you boxing him out. 
So, so we start solving the equations behind the subtleties of the atom. We scare ourselves to death with it. Just, just Google the Tsar Bomba. You know, we as Americans, we, you know, we did things that I think we regretted doing and eventually said, um, you know, really we need a nuclear test ban treaty above ground. I mean, we're just going to have to do that. Because we did some stupid things. We did some stupid things in the Pacific. We did some stupid things in the America West. Um, we, uh, we actually exploded an atomic bomb um, in outer space that was like not the smartest thing to do. But the Russians made the biggest one. And I guess just to scare us. I think it scared everybody. Now, this has been back in the, I don't know, late 50s, early 60s. They made the biggest one. When they set that sucker off, it changed the rotation of the earth. I mean, it was just that bad. And, and after that point, even they are like, yeah, okay, maybe, maybe you're right. Let's do a nuclear test ban treaty. Uh, we've taken this a little too far. So, 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 we, we threaten the destruction of humanity. And yet, God is the one who stoked the f- nuclear fires of 400 billion stars. And that's just in the Milky Way alone. So we have this great talent that God's given us. We've got amazing technology. And that is the reason why we get progressively more of the belief that we do not need God. Transhumanism, you know, somehow we're going to get your brain downloaded into a circuit that can be made part of a machine that, you know, you kind of have eternal life that way. Or if not, you know, we're going to cryogenically freeze your body and then we'll figure out the cure and then we will fall your body and then we will cure you and it'll go on from there. God speaks in derision. And second letter B, he speaks in displeasure. Verse 5, then shall he speak unto them in his wrath. And vex them in his sore displeasure. Turn to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14. God speaks to the nations right now through his word. What what do I mean? What is his word? Well, through Jesus and through the words of scripture. Okay, so they are the word. But there will come a day particularly after the church is raptured out, where God is going to speak to them not in word, but in wrath. And his vexation will take place during the tribulation. And actually in the center column of a King James Bible, the James gang informs you that that word vex could be translated trouble. Now, just so we're, you know, clear about the doctrinal context of this psalm and what it is that we need to be pulling people out of and rescuing them from so they don't get caught up in, uh, look at Revelation chapter 14. Somebody read verses 6 and 7. Revelation 14 verses 6 and 7. 
Tom's got it, and then and then uh, Brian, Brian, you get nine and ten, six and seven, nine and ten. Okay, verses 9 and 10. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So God speaks in derision. God speaks in displeasure. And finally, letter C, God speaks in determination. Verse 6, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Zion is the poetic name for the city of Jerusalem. Um, Zion, when it's spelled with an S, is not the poetic name, but the prophetic name for the city of Jerusalem. So you'll notice in the King James Bible, there's both Zion and there's Zion. Hebrews chapter 12. Somebody read verse 22. Hebrews 12, verse 22. Going once, going twice. And, and, and I guess you could all, both read it in unison. Uh, uh, Christy. Christy, go ahead. Hebrews 12, verse 22. Okay, so that's, that's the prophetic name for Jerusalem because it's a heavenly Jerusalem. So it's, so it's Sion. And, and seems like, to me, when the James gang uses an S and not Z, then they're acknowledging that there is a heavenly template for the earthly city. So Zion is predominantly the earthly city. Zion, the ultimate reality, which we fit into, if you read the end of the book of Revelation. And God speaks in determination regarding both. Because what he says in verse 6 is in the past tense, right? Verse 6, yet have I set. I'm not setting I, I already set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And the center column tells you that the way that, that God sets Jesus as his king right there was by anointing him. I made him my Christ. He is Jesus, my Messiah. So there's a holy hill that God calls Zion that's just south of Mount Moriah. In other words, it sets on the sides of the north. Psalm 48, verse 2. Um, you'll see it if you t- take our trip, go to, with us on our trip to Israel next time we take our Israel trip. Probably, probably, maybe in 2022. Maybe. We'll see. But when we go there, and we go there to the Zion part of the city of Jerusalem, you'll see the sacred space that was Melchizedek's. Um, 
which also was used for the tabernacle of David. And because right up there is the palace of David that's overlooking the rest of the city. It is mentioned here in the book of Psalms 38 times. It's not until you crest that holy hill that you get to Mount Moriah or the Temple Mount where Abraham was ready to slay Isaac and where Solomon built the temple. So after talking about God's guilty subjects and his great scorn for them, David shows us in verses 7 and 9, this is Roman numeral 3, God's glorious son. And the actual speaker in this segment is Jesus himself because he's recounting first letter A, his sonship. Verse 7, I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, the Father hath said unto the Son. It's not, it's not an eternal decree like the Calvinists and the Reformed theologians talk about because you can see from the center column again that what it means is I have declared for a decree. Turn, turn to Matthew chapter 3, but you turn to Matthew 3. Jesus makes this declaration and he does it as a decree that Jehovah said something to him. What did God the Father say to his anointed son? Well, verse 7, he said, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Okay, wait. Run the cross-references. And I'm going to have you turn to them, but I'm going to read them so that we can, um, you know, we can kind of see the, how this all pieces together. Run the cross-references. Matthew 3.17. Lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. All right, that, that's the first thing declared to Jesus. That was at his baptism. Uh, he, he didn't have to decree that because everyone present heard it. Now turn to Matthew 17. So at Jesus' baptism, Christ, the anoint, one anointed to be God's prophet, is, is baptized, sent out to preach the gospel to the poor, because that was now the acceptable time, the acceptable year of the Lord. And Jesus, whenever he refers to that, he stops reading um, Isaiah's, Isaiah the prophet right at that spot. Because if they will accept it, they will not see the day of vengeance that Isaiah goes on to talk about. Matthew 17 verse 5, watch. While Jesus yet spake, now this is on the Mount of Transfiguration, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. Okay, that's the second thing that is declared. But it didn't need to be decreed, because Peter, James, and John all heard it. Now turn to Hebrews chapter 1. So Jesus is not only God's prophet, but Jesus is also our high priest, so forget about Moses and Elijah. Forget about the law and the prophets because Jesus is the mediator for us now. So hear ye him. Now, Hebrews chapter 1, look at verse 5. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee? Well, none of the angels. Despite what the Jehovah's Witnesses say, because they say Jesus is not God, he was Michael the archangel. 
in the Old Testament. Well, no, that, that just doesn't fit. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Which of the angels did he say that to? And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness is in the scepter of thy kingdom. Now that is the third time, and that is the one that matches Psalm 2, verse 7. This time only the angels heard it, no humans heard it. And so Jesus has to decree to us what was declared, and what was declared to him in the presence of all God's other created beings is that Jesus is king. Jesus is God. Jesus is king. Jesus is going to sit on the throne of the universe as king of the kingdom of God. So God did not, he was not begetting. Jesus was not begetting. God did not beget Jesus at his physical birth. He was eternally the son of God because he's from everlasting to everlasting, the ancient of days. He was incarnately the son of God when God got down into Mary's womb and he was conceived. And he's manifestly the son of God because he rose from the dead. But there was a day when God, when God said that Jesus was gloriously the son of God because he was called God's anointed king. And his coronation was among all the angels. And Jesus decrees here in this psalm what God had declared. That way it proves that this king who will rule over David's throne on this planet as God's king of the kingdom of heaven is the son of God. It is Jesus. So we see Messiah's sonship, which connects us to letter B, his sovereignty. Look at verse 8. Back in verse 8. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession, which is a fine verse to preach in a missions conference. But the actual meaning of this verse is the millennium. It's not missions. Because the time that this happens, the moment it actually takes place, is at the second coming. At that time, the final aspect of this son who is sovereign is also seen in his severity, letter C, his severity. Verse 9, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now if you'll turn to Zechariah chapter 9. One moment the beast will strut across the stage of the world, building his case for the invasion of Israel. They must be hiding weapons of mass destruction in that temple. The Jewish Mossad was behind 9-11 because it was an inside job. The control of the wealth. I mean, they're out to destroy the world and to destroy our society. And once he gathers his armies and Israel's enemies to the valley of Jezreel at the hill of Megiddo, Armageddon, then they will be annihilated by an invasion from outer space by Jesus with his army. Look at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10. 
and I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. We, we will mow down their M1A2 Abrams tanks, and I will cut off the horse from Jerusalem. We will obliterate all the Humvees and other armored personnel carriers who are trying to get up, get up the hill to Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off because we're, I'm going to be like an iron dome against the cruise missiles and the drone strikes. And he shall speak peace unto the heathen. And his dominion shall be from sea even to sea and from the river even to the ends of the earth. And in the next moment, the beast is gone, as is his false prophet, and Jesus reigns from the rivers to the ends of the earth. And that is how completely God answers Jesus' prayer to have the nations of this world as his inheritance. He will rule them with a rod of iron. Wickedness will be curbed. Be turning to 1 Timothy chapter 2. So after God's guilty subjects... After God's great scorn and after God's glorious sun, a new day dawns on the horizon. And this is Roman numeral four because of God's gracious spirit. So Genesis chapter one, verses one to three are really a Bible type or a metaphor of your lost condition and how you got saved. It's also a picture of how the Holy Spirit is involved in regeneration of this planet as well as the regeneration of your soul. So it tells us in Genesis 1 that the Spirit of God moved. Now look at 1 Timothy 2 verse 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who will have all men to be saved and come unto the knowledge of the truth. There is no doubt that the Holy Spirit yearns over lost human beings. And that if we want to say we know what Jesus is saying when Jesus is calling, and if we want to have the heart of God ourselves, we we have to have that same heart. We have to understand these things. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. Listen to this. Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? So before waging war, God always offers terms of peace. As a matter of fact, we saw in the book of Revelation, we see it right there in the tribulation, how God, you know, once... Human energy and human efficiency fails. God will, is going to send an angel to preach the gospel throughout the earth. So that's why he, he adds these last words from the Holy Spirit. Verse 10. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Lay down your arms of rebellion. And yet God will not force love and mercy on those who are determined to resist him. And so Jesus tells a parable so that we can see a a parable about those who have abused his absence 
And they seized his vineyards and his vast estates and they mismanaged the gifts of the Spirit and the fruits of his word, not to mention mismanaging his world. They will all one day be swept away. Why? Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. As we get ready in the last four minutes we got here to wrap up. I think it's, isn't it amazing that tears, fears, and trembling, Paul says tears, fears, and trembling are the acceptable proofs of spirit filling, of a godly walk, of pleasing God. And yet those are the various, the very things we go to the therapist to try and medicate ourselves out of. Philippians 2, verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. So the salvation that's in you, work it to the outside of you with fear and trembling. Why? Why is that the way to serve him? Because then we know God is at work. Your flesh is taken out of the way. Your personal ability and talent is is shoved aside and God is at work. Watch verse 13, Philippians 2, 13. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things with, therefore, this is what you should leave here tonight with. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Thanksgiving is on the horizon. Thanksgiving is coming up. Do Thanksgiving that ye may be blameless and harmless the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation which runs straight from Halloween right into Christmas, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Why? Because you are holding forth the word of life. Paul says, you do that so that I can rejoice in the day of Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. I will be able to rejoice that I've not run in vain when I ran to you. I've not labored in vain when I labored in your church. So Paul was right there with David on this one. And yet this is what we run from instead of serving God with. Back in our psalm, Psalm 2 verse 12, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Believe on Jesus. What for? For eternal life. How come? Because he died on the cross for you. And that is the Holy Spirit's last word on the second Hebrew hymn. The only other thing I gave you there on the handout uh, that I will draw your attention to there at the bottom um, is the fact that a doxology, a doxology, a word of praise Okay, Thanksgiving, a word of praise occurs at the, each of the five books that compri- comprise the one book of the book of Psalms. So, book one, and you may need to change this on the handout I gave a week or two ago where there was a chart. Book one is actually Psalms 1 to 41, not 1 to 42. So 1 to 41 because... Psalm 41, verse 13 says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting and to everlasting. Amen and amen. A double amen, that ends the book. Book two 
picks up in Psalm 42, carries it to his Psalm 72. Psalm 72 verses 18 to 20 say, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who, who only doeth wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Verse 20, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So that's the end of book two. Book three goes through Psalm 89. Verse 52 says, blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. Another double amen. Um, Book four goes through Psalm 106. Verse 48 says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, amen. Praise ye the Lord. Or as we sometimes translate it, hallelujah. And then the final word in the book, Psalm 150 verse 6, let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. So, that's how the book breaks out. That's what we're going to be looking at. And um, so, Lord willing, next time we get together, we're going to jump right straight to Psalm 119 because I really want to get in the good stuff and maybe a little bit more devotional. And um, uh, let us close out the year with what is there in Psalm 119 and start, uh, start next year with it. My time is up. I thank you for yours. Go ahead and stand. Bump elbows with your neighbor. And we'll have a word of prayer so you can go get uh, any of your kids you got in Awana. Father, I thank you again tonight uh, for an amazing time and an amazing book, Book of Psalms, an amazing chapter, Psalm 2. Um, Lord, it is, it's hard truth, but boy, it is such needed truth, and especially for us today. And what a challenge this ought to be for us to have the same heart that you have toward those who are outside of Christ. Lord, help us set everything else aside. Let's put everything else away. Let's make sure that we give ourselves to your word and to your heart and to how you want to use us in reaching others because the time is short. And what a shame. I mean, even if it weren't, but I believe it is. And if you were to come and we were not ready by way of not doing those things that you've called us to do, Lord, how ashamed should we be? I don't want that for anybody in this church. I don't want that for anybody in here. Lord, I pray you'd you'd increase, you'd expand our coast, you would multiply our our sheep like a flock. I, I pray that you would just give us more and more, Lord, of your people, First of the lost who need to be saved, but also your people who are, are not getting the focus they need. Maybe where they've been and uh, really need to get in the word of God, find out what it's all about, be discipled, um, enter into ministry, start serving you. Lord, help us do that because we are your body in your place at this time and in this place. The Lord would just rejoice just like Paul we will rejoice that we have not run in vain when we do this. We will have not wrought or worked in vain in working at this. And we just want all the glory to go to you, for we ask it in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen.